1: The bond market's kind of the main event over the last couple of days and we continue to focus on it right here on Bloomberg Surveillance. And I'm pleased to say we have a brilliant guest to explore this topic. It's Bill Lee. He's come from the IMF to Citi and he now finds himself at the Milken Institute as the chief economist. And he joins us right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bill, it's great to catch up with you as always. Your thoughts, please, sir, on the debt binge of the U.S. Treasury over the next couple of days.
2: Jonathan, you've just hit on one of the topics that's completely obsessing financial markets right now, right? With the relative balance of supply and demand of U.S. securities. We knew that when QE started to taper off and we knew that when the Fed started to rebalance and and reduce the growth of its balance sheet, the demand wasn't going to be there. What's surprising everybody was the extent to which the deficit is going to pump out supply, which is kind of strange when we knew that the deficit would be adding $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. The thing that is critical right now would be to what extent is it an inflation trade, and to what extent is it a, rest- a restoring of the normal term premium? And I think to my colleagues out there, my former trading desk colleagues at City, that inflation trade is premature. My conviction is that inflation is not around the corner. The Fed is not going to be bumping up rates faster than you think. But truly, what the the one trade that you have to think about is how to engage that term premium from a negative 30 basis points to a more normal position of about 75 to 80 basis points.
1: So Bill, let's walk through that. What do you see as the catalyst for a higher term premium and how does that materialize over the coming months, quarters, years?
2: I think that finally markets have got to realize that you gotta pay to have money in your pocket for a longer period of time. Until now, because of the distortions from QE, not just in the US, but around the world, the, the markets were somehow convinced that they had to pay for the privilege of parking money for a longer period of time. And <laughs> I think that's the normalcy that has to come back into the markets. And that's what they mean by normalization of monetary policy, right? We yeah. get rid of that distortion, but the markets are, are, are in some ways talking themselves into a spin by saying, oh my God, inflation's right around the corner, so certainly all rates are gonna go up. The it's going to be pushing the short end. The flatteners that we had in place they might not be working anymore because they might be steepeners, and 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 so the question is, where's the trade? And I think the 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 critical issue is. The the restoration of that term premium, if it happens at at least a a normal speed that we would hope to restore a positive term premium, that's the trade that we should be engaging in.
1: So, Bill, how do you see the shape of the curve evolving if that's ultimately your framework for thinking about the bond market right now? Because so far, the two-year note yield is doing much of the heavy lifting in terms of this increase in yields, 226, levels we haven't seen in about 10 years here in the United States.
2: Absolutely. And that, I think that's the confusion of the inflation trade and the term premium trade. Uh, the, the inflation trade is that because inflation is just around the corner, because we saw this, uh, this, this ridiculous number in average hourly earnings of, you know, mainly because supervisors got paid more. And in the CPI, because we see uh, parking fees have gone up and, and the so-called widespread increase in prices has been very limited mm-hmm. to hospital costs. Uh, parking fees and 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 leases on rental and 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 trucks. If you get rid of those and you get rid of the imputed. Prices out there. There's absolutely no sign of inflation. So I think the the the, the misguided trade that I think a lot of my colleagues are trying yeah. to do out there, which is to churn the markets. Because look, look remember Jonathan, right? As you would know, you were in the markets. The first quarter is where all sell side banks make their money. So this is the time to churn the market. And what better than to cause a lot of well, uncertainty out there between the two trades?
0: And then I should point out that Carl Riccadonna of Bloomberg Economics, agrees with you, uh, Bill, on being a suspect, I guess I would say, about the new uh, wage growth. Thrilled you're with us this morning, John Farrow and Tom Keene. Futures flat, Dow futures negative 23. Quiet markets with William Lee of the Milken Institute. Bill, in the old days, we just used to take the 10-year yield and say, how many basis points of it is a higher yield because of the Chinese? Can Bill Lee do that math
2: today? Wow, you know, everyone is obsessed about the Chinese being such large holders of U.S. Treasuries. How about Apple, Microsoft, Cisco, and and, and, and the pharmaceuticals out there? U.S. corporates have now become, I think, the key they, player because they're part, the money that they have abroad, it's not just parked in, in, in cash. It's parked in U.S. Treasuries. And where is it located have you seen that in all math? the tax havens? Have you done that math or seen that math? Tom, that's exactly my research agenda at Milken right now, and that's exactly the topic that we're writing on and we'll be discussing in our So when
0: you publish it, your first interview will be with (laughs)
2: Bloomberg Surveillance
0: and not John Farrow in the real yield.
2: I no longer longer have compliance officers, Tom, so the minute I finish even an early draft, I'm sending it to you.
1: There oh, we go. But we do. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Lee, it's a really good point. A lot of that money has been put into dollar-denominated assets already, not just treasuries, but credit as well, Bill. U.S. Credit, too, almost yes. across the board. These guys have become big fixed-income bond managers, which begs the question: as the tax law has changed, what does that mean for the way they rebalance some of those holdings?
2: Boy, Jonathan, that's a fantastic topic. And you know, that's like part two of my, my research agenda. Because right now half the debt out there is in is exactly in credit, right? And so so investment grade and and you see that despite all of the volatility in the equity markets, absolutely nothing has happened to the spreads between high yield and, yeah. and, and, and investment grade. And I think when when we start to have the so-called repatriation. I question how much of it's going to be brought back because a lot of it is already here in the sense that the U.S. U.S. companies are flush with <clears throat> cash and they can do any kind of capex they want out of their con- current cash flows. Yeah, what we saw in 2004 was the incentives to bring things back just didn't bring a lot of this stuff back. So I think the the, the 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 distortions in the markets that are there, um, the the. Bond managers that are now in Apple and Cisco, I think they're going to behave like all the well, other bond traders out there and leave things alone until they start then, to see the incentives kick is, in.
0: This is critical, Billy, and Jack Ablin was brilliant on this yesterday. Do we see cap X? Do we see investment? However you want to phrase it, is it there now
2: or will it be there in the next 12 months? Well, here, how's this for a twist, Tom? Everyone who's come to this microphone, including me, has said the thing they worry about most is that every corporate out there is saying that we're going to use this extra. Uh, uh, tax reduction money and and, and whatever money we bring back and distribute as dividends and stock buybacks. Now, when you think about it, does that mean that it just disappears off the face of the earth and doesn't show up in investment at all? No, it just means that your corporate managers telling the shareholders, I can't make this cash work for you any better than I've already done. Why don't you take it back and find better investment opportunities? Well, isn't that exactly what we're supposed to be doing? Reallocating funds from companies that can no longer use the excess cash to companies that can. And now, your big question is, where's the money going? And and I think the, the trends in real CapEx, if you look at BFI from the national income accounts, right, the place where it's growing fastest is in technology and second in uh, machinery equipment. So we're modernizing our productive capacity. Uh, and I think that's really the key to boosting productivity growth in the long run. I
1: actually spoke to Cisco about this last week, Tom, and I think it's a really important point. And, and Chuck Robbins of Cisco basically owned up. He's been very transparent about it. He said, the tax law has not restricted my strategy whatsoever because the bond market was so open for me in the years gone by. I could yeah. just borrow in the debt market and do what I wanted no. to do anyway. So the idea that you've got a tax cut and you bring this money home, so to well, speak, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't change things for many companies.
0: Billy, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. He is with Milken Institute. And science coming up later, we're really going to look at what Elon Musk has done. This has not had nearly the coverage it should. When you go back to the days of Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the unmanned missions of Cassini, and then it's like, yeah, it's Elon Musk, big deal, SpaceX. It is a miracle, the engineering. From a personal point
1: of view, I think we spend too much time talking about Tesla and maybe not enough time talking about SpaceX. I don't
0: have an opinion on Tesla. What, what, what I'm certain is they put part of the thing up there, yeah. they put the whole thing up there, and they bring part of it back down and reuse it.
1: So so what's interesting today, and you'll be able to speak yeah. to this as well, is the secondary payload. They're sending up a big satellite. No one really cares much about Three that. Three satellites. with the within, secondary yeah. payload of these two smaller satellites, Yes. low orbit, they are set to put thousands up there at some point in the future, so we can have this huge internet service from low orbit satellites that just fly all around the world. So basically you can get broadband to every corner of the planet. That's amazing. With, without needing to worry about the so connectivity on land.
0: If we do that, I can get, hi guys, it's
1: me. Basically, <laughs> basically. And hi we guys, can,
0: it's me. I'm back. <laughs> hi guys, it's me. How you doing? <laughs>
1: Who are you going to do that to?
0: I don't know, but I'm getting too much YouTube at home. We gotta, you know, <laughs> I'm on my my YouTube hate binge uh Well, right now, flat on the markets, negative 33, but the two-year yield uh, gives one pause. Why don't you bring in Robert Miller, uh, John Farrell of BlackRock, who is more than qualified to talk about the sudden curve flattening that two-year yield jump.
1: Yeah, one of the leading voices in global fixed income, working very closely with the CIO of BlackRock. For global fixed income, Rick Reader, it is Bob Miller. I'm very pleased to say it's BlackRock's head of US multi-sector fixed income. Bob, what do you make of the big move on the two-year yield that we've seen over the last few months?
3: Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, Well, as as you know, Jonathan, we've spoken over the last year or so. We're not um, surprised by the move higher. I think it's consistent with The guidance that the Federal Reserve has been giving us with respect to the anticipated tightening of monetary policy over this year and and into next year. And I also think it's consistent with the better uh, growth and inflation prospects that have been uh, increasingly evident in the U.S. economy.
1: Bob, a lot of people were positioning for a flatter yield curve. I do wonder now, you've had this real push higher at the very front end, one-month bills now about 1.4% one year notes now about two percent. Are we at a situation where this opportunity cost of being in cash like products over other things have really shifted? And whether things like investment grade need to reprice because you can basically have a one month T bill at one point four percent and to take any kind of extra duration credit risk, you need to be compensated for that and you're not being
3: So a great question and and precisely along the lines that we're currently thinking. We think the front end of the yield curve Uh, In fact, out to the kind of the short intermediates, out to the three to five-year point, is increasingly attractive as the diversification agent in your portfolio, especially if you're holding risk assets. So your your point, the five-year yield, the five-year treasury yields, 84% of the 30-year yield. And yet you can withstand, if if rates sell off 44 basis points more from here, you're going to lose two price points. If it was an instantaneous sell-off, you lose two price points in your five-year note where the same break-even in the 30-year yield is 10 basis points to lose two price right. points. So we think that the front end of the yield curve offers increasingly attractive value as a diversification right. agent in your portfolio.
0: Which of those ratios is critical for our listeners, the five-year compared to the 30-year, the two-year compared to the 10? is you look at the percent of a short-term yield as compared to a long-term yield, which is the ratio that matters bob miller
3: so i think it depends upon the circumstances so in it, if we were at much higher uh, nominal and importantly real rates then the flat yield curve would likely be suggesting um, significantly tighter financial conditions which would lead to an increased risk of the economy decelerating over the over the forecast horizon in this instance policy and interest rates are still relatively accommodative. Right? Short-term real interest rates <laughs> mm-hmm. are still quite accommodative. So a, a substantial contributor to the flatness of the yield curve is the um, non-U.S. central bank activity, specifically the, law, the large-scale asset purchase program still taking place in Europe and Japan, which creates this gravitational pull on the long end of the U.S. yield curve. Right. So I think it, it, it's important to distinguish why each part of the curve is doing what it's doing I don't think the current flatness, twos, tens, or fives bonds, is indicative or sending any signal that of, of impending deceleration Mer- risk in the U.S. economy.
0: You know, very important comments there with us today. Bob Miller, he is with BlackRock, and we'll continue our discussion. Bloomberg Surveillance, as always, brought to you by Cohn Resnick. Tax reform can have a major impact on your business. Get insight from the experts at Cohn Resnick. Visit Kohn Resnick dot com slash tax reform, Conresnik Accounting Tax Advisory. Let me spell that for you. C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K, Cohn-Resnick. And we thank them
1: for their support. John Farrell. Thank you, Tom King. Uh, Bob Miller with us from BlackRock today. I'm really pleased to say to help us work through this deluge of Treasury supply that comes through the week, talking about diversifying into Treasuries, the short-dated Treasuries that are giving you a little bit extra yield now. And, Bob, my question off the back of that is you diversify into some of these Treasuries. You diversify away from what? Investment grade? High yield? Where do you cut risks so you can make that diversification play?
3: Yeah, so good question again, Jonathan. I, I think the, the the way we're thinking about the rise in treasury yields and how it competes for capital with other asset classes is that the the rise we've seen so far in treasury yields is likely to begin competing for capital with investment grade credit, uh, and, and specifically the the shorter maturity, um, tighter spread, high quality product that. Um, when when five year notes were fifty basis points lower in yield, you know, you you were able to earn that extra compensation by holding the credit risk. But now with with treasuries having increased substantially, it calls into question holding that that credit instrument, even though it's still at a positive spread, the spread is less attractive than it was before. So I think it starts to compete for capital in shorter duration IG. And you're seeing that as the credit curves in investment grade space have been flattening quite aggressively. And then it eventually, our, our view is that the, the risk-free rate competes for capital at different levels with different asset classes, meaning risk-free rates have to go considerably higher before they begin to compete with equities. But you'll see them move out the capital structure or or down the capital structure, first competing with higher quality investment grade bonds, then eventually competing for higher yield bonds, and then eventually competing with equity.
1: So this is a really, really interesting point, Bob. This is going to work its way down the capital structure, but the first to get hit is the stuff at the top of the capital structure, so therefore you should take more risk at this point. I'm just trying to get my head around that, Bob.
3: Well, I think it's more of a barbell approach. We like owning okay. the, the you know, the, as I mentioned before, we like the, the short to intermediate part of the treasury curve specifically. But we also still think that the equity market is likely to do okay this year, given the significant impulses that are coming through the economy through fiscal policy over the course of the next year to year and a half. Yeah.
0: Well, then how do you respond? I think everybody can hear the dynamics that's in your head, Bob Miller, after decades of doing this. Including your work at BlackRock, how do you respond to the rote? Oh, we're worried about the deficit view. How do you respond to the tax cut plus new deficit deficits to come?
3: I'm I'm worried about the deficit, uh, but the you know so consider this: if the we're we're we are likely going to be running five percent deficits to GDP in the next several years at a time when we're at full employment and we've closed the output gap. That doesn't that doesn't feel good, considering that there will be another deceleration slash recession on the horizon yeah. some point in the future. So that worries me. Um, in a perfect world, we would have had spending right. offsets right to to <clears throat> accompany the the credible and and um, helpful parts of the okay. tax legislation.
0: Uh, Bob Miller, thank you so much. With BlackRock, greatly greatly appreciate that this morning. For those of uh, you who were enjoying Bob Moon and Dana Hull's perspective on SpaceX, the uh, mission was scrubbed. I don't yeah, know, we're going to do it all. What again is the tomorrow. last time we said that or covered that? I mean, it's been—you know—they used to be scrubbed all the time, whether it was space shuttle or right Apollo, Gemini, high-level winds.
4: We'll try it all again <clears> tomorrow, <throat> yeah. six seventeen Pacific time, nine seventeen yeah. Eastern time. Some
0: things have never changed, and that is uh, one of them. Is that Rocketry is beholden to the weather. So we'll look for that from SpaceX tomorrow. And what's great about it, I mean, if if you remember, I remember clear as a bell, Pin Fox. I, do you know that I actually lied to my mother Uh-oh. to stay home the day that John Glenn orbited? Really? I, it was like the movies. I took the temperature thermometer thing I put it against the light bulb and I was incredibly sick with a massive temperature that recovered as Walter Cronkite told me. Miraculously, the it. next day, right? I remember, and my father was involved in the program, and within all the safety of that and the certitude of the space program. All right,
4: so let me ask you a question, though. You know, because uh, many people only experience this through the movies, whether it's the right stuff or Apollo Apollo thirteen and so on. Or on uh, YouTube by looking at, you know, vintage uh, yeah. video of, of the launches. Uh, do you think it really captures the feeling and the excitement mm-hmm. that you um, beheld?
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. And I heard James Minchner once, the great author of historical fiction, he got so angry at the way the space program was covered that he wrote the book Space. And he purposely gave it a bad ending, not a terrible ending. But bad things happened at the end of the book. I won't spoil uh, the book. And what I do remember about it, and I think, Bob, I, I think I can speak for Bob Moon, whose parents were also intimately involved with it. He was more in Surveyor and Mars, and uh, my father was more in Photography and the Moon, is they were acutely aware of how it could go wrong. And the single thing I've seen is that the National Archives, a small, almost three-by-five postcard that William Sapphire wrote out for President Nixon if the astronauts didn't make it home. And that that's chilling, is they actually had the comments the president would make if they didn't make it home on that July afternoon. Uh, so we'll do that tomorrow. We'll have full coverage of SpaceX for you tomorrow. We enjoy doing that. And, um, it, it's a, and again, it's a brief flight. I mean, you can dive into it and do it just for a moment. Right now, we want to dive into... Some of the economics of the moment, and it is appropriate we speak with Raghun Rajan of the University of Chicago and their Booth School, of course, with his public service to his India, his head of their central bank. Raj, I want to go back to, Rago I want to go back to uh, Fault Lines, your claim book. And there's an e- equivalency now where people are looking at our fiscal position in the United States and saying we've hit a fault line in our fiscal policy, our debt and our deficit. Have we?
5: Well, it, it isn't helping. We've got an expanded deficit. Uh, of course, the biggest issue is not so much our debt, but the uh, entitlements going forward, uh, both on health care as well as social security. So at some point in the not too distant future, we need to take a close look at all this and see if it, if it in fact is fundable. And of course, a higher deficit doesn't help in that regard.
0: Part of the way you get out of a deficit is the little g in the equation, which is economic growth. Can you plug in a new little g into your mathematics, which says the U.S. can grow better?
5: Well, I I think here the key is productivity. And unless we can get productivity up, uh, some of it will come up as investment picks up. But unless we get it seriously up from the 0.5, 0.6% it's been growing at, it's very hard to imagine the potential growth for the United States will go up much beyond two and a half, perhaps three in some quarters. But uh, you know that's really where uh, everything lies. Can we get the US to be more productive? Where are all the innovations going? Why aren't they showing up in greater labor productivity?
4: Uh, Mr. Rajan, I just want to change the, the topic just slightly. I'm curious, did the former Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers, did he ever apologize to you? (laughs)
5: <laughs> no, I, Larry and I uh, get along. I, I, I don't think there was any apologize, uh, apology Maybe required. just tell we... people the backstory here
4: because I want to find out what you think is uh, in, in store for the future. Give people the backstory a little bit.
5: Well, the, the, uh, I guess the backstory you're referring to is a speech I made in 2005 in Jackson Hole where I said that the financial system was building up risks and uh, there was there were potential problems down the line. Uh, and uh, I think Larry Nailed at that, that time Larry uh, suggested that I was being a little bit of a luddite I wanted to go back in time and prevent the innovation that was happening. Uh, of course after that we had a, a good laugh about it uh, um, you know uh, predictions uh, um, are are really hard to make and uh, sometimes they, they they do come out but I, I don't claim I'm a I'm a perfect forecaster.
4: Okay, so having said that, and uh, that's a nice uh, footnote so that you know no one gets into any trouble. Based on what you're seeing now and how you analyze, uh, let's say global financial markets, uh, give us your outlook for the next, let's say three years. We can wait that long.
5: Well, I, I would say that uh, over the next uh, uh, next few quarters, we still have the benefits of very strong growth. Uh, However, strong growth also mean that uh, interest rates are going up, and as interest rates go up, the extreme levels of leverage we built up in these very accommodative conditions will start showing up in some places. Now, I don't think it's going to show up all over the place, but certainly there are places of worry. For example, if you look at covenant light loans, they have picked up substantially over the last uh, few years, uh, and they're at a much higher level than they were before the global financial crisis. So there are pockets uh, of worry which will start showing up as, as interest rates pick up. Uh, I think it's hard to say that uh, at this point whether there'll be a, a, a reason for systemic stress, but certainly they, they bear watching. Uh, so broadly, uh, I think growth for the next few quarters, but eventually we have to deal with both the disappearance of, uh, of the very accommodative conditions and liquidity, as well as rising interest rates.
0: Roger Rajan with us, thrilled that he's with us with the University of Chicago in the Booth School. Uh, Of course, uh, his leadership at the Central Bank of India uh, noted as well. We're going to come back with him. Pim, that's something to see, that new commitment of J.P. Morgan to to New York City. I mean, we're a little biased on this and that Mr. Bloomberg uh, uh, has built, Bloomberg and our New York headquarters here out at 499 Park, 499 Park, and then now over here on Lexington. We should say that Michael Bloomberg is, of course, principal owner, of Bloomberg LP, uh, uh, owner of this radio station as well. But there's J.P. Morgan. That's a that's a big 15,000 bodies that's on a Park lot Avenue. Of people, yeah. That that's you know that's something. That's called economic growth, which is a good way to bring in the gentleman from Chicago, uh, Raghun Rajan, uh, with us. Rugger, R- 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 that—that's what cities are about, and whether it's your Chicago, or it's New York, or maybe it's Mumbai as well in India. Cities are the new dominant force, aren't they, in our economic growth? E-
5: Absolutely. And uh, what is amazing <clears throat> is how some cities are flourishing, uh, even while I think this is the downside. Uh, a number of areas are, are are not. And so if you're in a city and you look around, it all looks well. If you're in a capital city, uh, it looks even better. And then you look around uh, and you move into the areas that you fly over and you see things are now, not so well. And I think that's part of what we've been going through over the last few years, did, uh, a political awakening that uh, that not all areas have benefited.
0: Did you personally experience the pollution of Delhi?
5: Oh, absolutely! <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you know, Delhi has uh, both a tremendous expansion in traffic, but also, uh, and this is the interesting part, uh, farmers around Delhi who don't actually pull up uh, the the remnants of their harvest, but instead burn it. And that creates enormous particulate matter, especially in winter. So it's both the old and the new which are creating pollution problems in Delhi, making it one of the more polluted uh, cities in the world.
0: You've been in the nexus then of economic growth and the offsets to climate change. What did you learn on your tenure of duty for your India about balancing the dynamics of economics with the science of climate change?
5: Well, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, there isn't uh, necessarily um, a a problem that in India today, for example, uh, both wind power as well as solar power are actually quite remunerative. And we've got a lot of new uh, sort of ventures coming along, uh, which promise to produce that. Of course, you need the base load uh, to be produced by things like gas and coal, uh, and that won't go away until uh, we get safer nuclear. But uh, certainly, solar and wind are coming up in a tremendous way, and this will help both in the global emission uh, issue, but also in local pollution.
4: You know, earlier we were awaiting the launch of uh, the Falcon 9 from uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about Elon Musk's uh, efforts to store energy in huge battery farms like the one in Australia. Uh, do you believe that most cities, or most locations are going to have these kinds of storage facilities? Is it really going to change uh, the way people access their energy?
5: Well, we require enormous uh, quantities of storage if we are to supplant uh, the coal and gas uh, um, sort of uh, um, uh, producers going forward. Uh, One possibility, uh, if we can do it, is clean nuclear and safe nuclear. And and there are uh, sort of efforts underway to do that. But uh, my sense is what we should do is generally have an environment in which we try all the innovation that we can, uh, whether it's solar, whether it is uh, storage, whether it is uh, clean nuclear. And and the best way to do that, uh, as economists will say again and again, is a carbon tax, a tax on pollutants, so that everybody then has the right incentive to innovate.
0: Let us turn uh, to the new chairman. Of the Federal Reserve System, Rago, and that is Mr. Powell. He needs a vice chairman to give him assistance. There's wide speculation on this. And, of course, everybody's seen the battle that Marvin Goodfriend of Carnegie Mellon's going through and trying to become a governor. But, but help us here with the kind of vice chairman you would perceive as necessary at the Fed.
5: Well, uh, I think uh, at this point, uh, Mr. Powell obviously has a fair amount of experience already uh, having served at the Fed with Mm -hmm. Janet Yellen, Uh, but uh, he is not an academic uh, economist. And I would see uh, somebody as vice chairman who has both an academic background but also a uh, a fair understanding of policy so somebody who straddles both worlds would be ideal and uh, you know what uh, that uh, person uh, uh, male or female has to do is help uh, uh, Mr Powell as the uh, United States uh, sort of goes on this process of uh, of uh, normalizing and this is a very critical process because uh, uh, too fast and you uh, disrupt the economy, too slow, and the amount of leverage that's been building up continues building up mm-hmm. and creates longer-run problems. So per- we really need somebody who can find that Goldilocks touch.
0: Professor, thank you so much. I know you have meetings uh, uh, at the top of the hour at Chicago. We greatly appreciate your time this morning. Raga Raj and of course, folks at the Booth School and his leadership of the Indian Central Bank, the RBI. Uh, goes without mention. It was, uh, by all acclaims, an extremely successful uh, tenure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.